Open back up to John's Gospel, the Gospel of John. Continuing our study this morning, and you see on the screen there, the title of the message is Jesus is Life. Just three words, three simple words that I'm guessing you've heard before, probably spoken them before. If you're like me, you've, you've seen them in a variety of places. I've seen that expression on t-shirts, on billboards, on bumper stickers. You've seen it all over. But what's it mean? Is there any substance to it? We just sort of toss it around. I uh, played for my daughters this morning on the way in the Stephen Curtis Chapman song called Jesus is Life, and it repeats over and over and over the statement, Jesus is Life, and it's woo ooh 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 things like that. Slightly more enthusiasm than I just gave it. I'm not going to sing ever, Rob, from up here. We've talked about it. He keeps telling me to sing. It's not happening. But you hear it a lot. To, to skeptics out there, the statement, Jesus is life, is probably considered just some sort of religious, superstitious type statement. Maybe a, a sort of tribute to an imaginary friend or something like that. Jesus is life. What's it mean? What's the significance of it? What difference does it make? I'm thinking of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians when he contemplated the resurrection. He said, hey, if there's no resurrection, then we're of all men most miserable. Like if, if Jesus is not life, if that's a false statement in any way, then we've been duped. We've thought there's more and there isn't. We thought there's hope and there isn't. On the other hand, if it is true, I mean, if it is true, wow, right? So I want to spend a little time this morning. We could talk forever about this topic, like every topic we address, right? Pastor Rob from the pulpit here. We could talk on and on about these things, and not just because we're long-winded people, but because there is really so much to be said because of the richness and the depth of God's truth. John 1, just one verse. Verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We've talked about for the last few weeks the idea of Jesus as Lagos. And one of the things we've considered is that he's always been. So he created all things. It says everything that has been created was created by him. In verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? That's everything. Jesus has life in himself He is independent in his life. Unlike us, so many ways in which he is unlike us. And this is one of them and one of those glorious ways in that he doesn't depend upon anything or anyone for life. And and we do. A friend of mine used to illustrate it this way. I think it was really helpful. He would talk about athletes. You watch a football game or a basketball game, talking about Pro-athletes, at the top level, most talented individuals out there, strongest, fastest, best of the best. And you notice after they've been playing out there on the field or on the court, they go to the sideline and they reach for their water bottle or their Gatorade. Or maybe they're uh, giving their little interview after the game, press conference, talking about all their amazing plays and the exploits of the team and and they reach over for that, for that drink. 
take a sip. And every time they take a sip, you know, you know what they're saying? They don't, they don't say it, but you know what they're saying? I'm dying. They're saying, I'm dying. They're saying this. They're saying, I'm not God. I'm dependent. I need things. We all need a host of things to survive, just physically. We need water. We need food. We need shelter. We need clothing. We need, from outside of ourselves, we need something, someone to provide for us, don't we? Because we are dependent. But this says that in him was life. He needs nothing from nobody. Just is life. It's amazing. We've been considering throughout, for a few weeks, Pastor Rob started on this topic. I've said a little bit about it in our podcast. We've talked about this, but the idea of the Lagos, and we said it speaks to him as, as creator and how all, all that is in the material world he, he created. And so we talked about physical life. Anything that lives physically lives because of him. We said a bit about that this morning as well. But just to remind you, that means absolutely every form of life, every form of plant life, insect life, animal life, human life, every form of life comes from him and is dependent upon him for its sustenance. Every form. There's a, there's a documentary that came out, I think in the early 2000s, called Expelled, in which Ben Stein, some of you may know who he is, he was um, exploring how... Intelligent design is not really a welcome topic in university settings. And at one point, this is one of my favorite parts of the documentary, at the end of it, he interviews Richard Dawkins. Now, a lot of you probably know who Richard Dawkins is. If you don't know who Richard Dawkins is, he's basically the Billy Graham of atheistic evangelists. So he's an atheist, and he is an outspoken atheist, very well known, published books, and speaks all around the world, and is a university professor, highly respected. Well, I mean, anyone knows everything there is to know about evolution and these questions concerning origins and things like that. It's, it's Richard Dawkins. Well, at the end, Ben Stein is interviewing him and asks him this question that is evidently a vexing question for all evolutionists, which is the question, hey, where did life begin? How did non-living matter become living matter? And, you know, Richard Dawkins had to admit in that moment, uh, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know how life began. For so many, it's a, it's a mystery. Through his word, God reveals the answer, the truth. In him was life. In him was life. So we think of physical life and our need and our dependence upon him. It says elsewhere in the New Testament that he sustains us every moment. We have all these things going on. Even right now, as you, as you sit there in your seat, there are all these involuntary things your body is doing that you're not even thinking about, you're not even conscious of. And, and they're all part of Christ's design at work, keeping you going. It's amazing, isn't it? Think of the, the limitations of our, of our resources. So who's happy about gas prices right now? <laughs> they're actually a little better. Of course, the reason they're a little better is not exactly comforting if you know some of the backstory of that. But they're a little better for the moment. But we're all impacted by gas prices. We drive by gas stations all the time. You see the numbers go up. You see the numbers go down. You know what all that has to do with? It has to do with the fact that gas is limited. That substance that you pump into your vehicle that makes it go, there's actually a limited quantity of that. 
At some point, it's going to run out. And so all this discussion and debate about energy, and of course, it's hotly debated politically. We're not going there at all, but you're familiar with it. You feel it. You feel the pain at the pump, right? It's a reminder to you that the resources of this world are limited. And this is just for fun. This is where I tend to go in my mind. So, you know, we talk about other forms of energy that are more efficient, and I think that's a worthwhile conversation that we have to have. We have to, because these things are running out at some point. I don't know exactly when, but at some point. But uh, here's one for you. You think about all the solar panels and all that, which is great, but did you know the sun is burning out? That seems like a significant problem. The sun is burning out. Now, before that, you're going to, I know, like me, you're going to add that to your list of things to worry about. Before you do that, just know, they estimate like in the billions of years from now. So we're, we're good. Our great, 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 you know, ad infinitum grandkids might not be, but we're okay. But even these cosmic realities, they're saying something. They're speaking to the limitations of the material world that all of us are, are needy and limited and finite and temporal And here's a passage that says one simple statement, in him was life, and it helps us make sense of all that, because he's the one who made it, he's God, it is not, we are not, we are all very small. There's a sense in which, I talked about this last week, but the universe, which is so vast, immeasurably vast, I don't even know how how large it can even be measured, there's a sense in which it is very small compared to the one who made it in terms of power, because it says, in him was life, and there is absolutely nothing and no one who can take that from him. And in no way is it ever exhausted or running down. My phone in my pocket right now is losing battery power, and so is yours. He is not losing any of his life. Just has it. Just a statement. In him was life. Just blows you away from the very earliest chapters in the Bible, Genesis 2 and 3, we're introduced to the concept of death and we're told that humans are dead and dying. A little somber note for a moment, but it is true. From Adam and Eve forward, you know God said, hey, day you partake of that fruit, and not just like you're going to eat some piece of fruit, but you, you seek to put yourself in the position of God, knowing good and evil, to be like God. And the day that you dethrone me, God says, that's death. And what you see from there, after they partake of that fruit, is you see a whole lot of death. Genesis chapter 4, the first murder, Cain, killing Abel. Genesis 5 is a genealogy, and it starts with Adam, and it goes on from there. It says things like, and there was Adam, and he had this son, and he lived so many years, and he died, and then so-and-so, old King James, beget so-and-so, and he lived so many years, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. All throughout chapter 5 Genesis. It's really uplifting. You should check it out sometime. (laughs) But it's true, and I obviously joke, but it is uplifting because it acquaints us with the reality of our need, the reality of our dependence. It prepares us to hear something like, in him was life, and to actually think it means something. There's something that says, I need him. Because I'm mortal and I'm dying. And my body reminds me of it. And the created order around me reminds me of it. And even the sun burning out reminds me of it. 
So we've talked about physical life. That's one dimension of this passage. Surely, as he's described in the first few verses, the idea of creation. But along with that, this passage also points us to new creation, spiritual life. And when it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now here's another metaphor or picture saying, just as Christ is the logos, he's the word, he's also the the light in that this life of God is imparted to us through the person of Jesus. Just as those beams come from the sun to us and they warm us and they illumine us or illuminate us, I guess. As that is reality, so also we receive not only physical life, but spiritual life from Jesus. And that's why it starts to go into the idea of him coming into this world of darkness and taking upon himself flesh and, and coming to be, as John the Baptist heralds, he comes to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he comes on this quest or this mission to save us, not just from physical death, although that is a substantial problem, but more importantly, from spiritual death. And so Jesus, as the life, is concerned with rescuing those who are dead Jesus as the light, which is where Pastor Rob will go next, but as the light will shine into the darkness, into the very darkness of our own lost, fallen soul to give salvation and hope. So that's where it's going. But for a moment, would you think with me a little bit more about spiritual death? Would you turn to Ephesians chapter 2? This is where Paul talks about it, and there's many, many places he talks about it. But Ephesians 2 is one of them. And I want to make one primary observation about this passage here in Ephesians 2, which helps us to appreciate why the statement, Jesus' is life, is so valuable to us in terms of our spiritual life. For us to appreciate it, we have to get this. Read with me Ephesians 2, verses 1-5, through 5, as Paul talks about our condition and Christ's provision. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Here's what I want you to notice there before we talk about the implications of the good news preached through this text. Just notice what he says about the bad news, just a little bit about the bad news. He says, in your death, here's the main symptom of it, He uses the terms trespasses and sins in verse 1, but then jump down to verse 3, puts a little finer point on it. He says, we too formerly lived before we met Jesus, before we were acquainted with the reality that Jesus is life. This is where we were stuck completely. He says, we lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Just observe with me that One of the main symptoms of spiritual death is lust. And and you hear that as as church folks. I know my temptation is to hear them to think very narrowly of sexual lust, but the term is much broader than that. It's just saying you are people who have all sorts of desires. Desires that are enslaving, 
desires that ultimately cannot be fulfilled, you have all these desires. It goes back to the beginning where Adam and Eve thought they could get more out of creation than from the Creator Himself. The fatal flaw or the most tragic lie that we tend to believe, naturally speaking, it's what we observed when we studied Ecclesiastes recently. and We heard Solomon talking about all his pursuits and all this money and all this power he had, but just it was never enough. It was vanity. It was empty. He just couldn't get substance, but he just kept trying. But there was this dissonance within him because he knew it was like, the harder I try, the emptier I feel. And God was revealing something deeper to him. Well, in Ephesians and elsewhere, there's many places in the New Testament where the essence of the human condition, apart from God's rescuing grace, is described in terms of desires. Excessive desires, enslaving desires. Desires propel us through life. In one sense, that's appropriate. You wouldn't have gotten up this morning if you didn't want to come to church. So wants are a necessary part of life. But you know how it goes. So many of the things that we want and that we crave and that we demand simply end up enslaving us, don't they? controlling us, leaving us empty, leaving us ashamed. And as Paul describes the human condition and spiritual death, he puts it in terms of lust, desire, greed. So as we're going back to John 1, you can turn back there. Would you just think about these questions with me? What are you craving, needing, demanding this morning? What are you craving? What are you needing? think you're needing? What are you demanding? What is it about your life that you feel needs to be different? What is it that just must change? What is it about your family that just must be different? You just need it to be different. You just, you just long for it to be different. It just has to be different. What is it about this church that just isn't quite enough? It just has to be more. It just has to be. Where is it? I believe that Christ comes to all of us and asks us questions like that. God's been asking those questions from the beginning, like with Adam and Eve. Hey, where are you? Yes, even Cain referenced Cain in chapter 4 earlier. Cain, why is your countenance fallen? What's happening? Where are you? What's going on inside? What are you craving? What do you think you need? Where's the lust? Where's the greed? Where's the corollary to that? Where's the anger coming from? Where's the New Testament joins these two often? Where's the judgment toward others? Why are you so, why are you so upset with others? Where's that coming from? I remember sitting in church years ago in Washington, and, and my good friend and co-pastor Don Brewer was teaching, and he told a story at the time. He was, and he still is, a chaplain of the National Guard, and one of the things that he had to do was they would take turns serving the, the VA hospital there. So they would cycle through the different chaplains, and each of them would have this turn going to the hospital, and they were kind of on call all weekend. And Don told this story about how it was, had been a really busy week. He was exhausted just from all the, other op, you know, all the other obligations of work and family and ministry, so he was worn out already going into the weekend. And he said the chaplain who preceded him, when he handed off the pager to him, said... May God give you exactly what you need this weekend. Now, you may be interpreting that as, hey, may God give you the grace and the strength and the courage to face whatever you're going to face this weekend. And that's part of what he was communicating. But part of the teaching of that chaplain that my friend Don would talk about was part of what he would talk about along with that provision of grace is, 
and this is key. Please catch this, okay? As he hands the pager over, what he's saying is, hey, this weekend's going to go the way God designs for it to go and allows it to go. This weekend is going to go the way your good heavenly Father has ordained for it to go for your good. I remember sitting there. So whatever you're feeling right now, I don't know, you're probably feeling something. I don't know what it is, but I know what I was feeling at the time because I was in a period of my life where I was very discontent. Discontent in ministry, discontent in my marriage in some ways, discontent in other aspects of my life. I was just in a very dark place. And when he said that, there was this combination of both frustration, resistance, but yet I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I couldn't argue with the fact, hey, if, if God is the creator of all, if he wanted it to be different, if he set the planets in their place, he can probably set the little planets of my life in place and change them if he wanted to change them. And if he doesn't, then I'm left to sit here and contemplate, wait a minute, what am I needing right now? Or better yet, what am I thinking that I'm needing? Why am I so discontent? Why am I so miserable? Why does it just feel like I just got to have more than this? This just is not enough. Why would he let me be here? Maybe, maybe he lets us be in those places so that we might hear statements like, Jesus is life, and actually sense our need for that to be true. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Maybe he puts us in our place. That expression does not have a positive connotation, does it? For someone to put you in your place. But maybe as a loving father, he puts us in our place to reveal to us his grace. In him is life. In him you have everything you need to include even the circumstances you currently find yourself in. Jesus knew better than anyone, better than even Paul, because Jesus is God. He knew what the human heart was like and is like, and he knew that within every human heart there are endless cravings like appetites that are insatiable. And that's why as we move to the Gospel of John, we're going to hear Jesus say things like this. I know you're thirsty, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Or later in John 6, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. God help us believe that, right? And someday we're going we're gonna to know it. Like we can only just barely know it now, but we're going to know it. We're going to taste it. We're going to taste and see that God is good. And he's teaching us that now. Our souls have appetites that are bottomless, that only he can fulfill. Nothing in creation can do it. In him is life. That's why. Because, because life around us and even life we experience is derived life. It's dependent life. He is the source. He's the wellspring of life. That's why he compares it to living waters. A fountain of living waters just never runs dry. 
So years ago, we were vacationing in Florida, and we were driving from one part of Florida up to Orlando. We're going to take our kids to Disney World. It's a really fun vacation. And I'll never forget, we were traveling on this one freeway heading westbound, and it was kind of a remote area. And we drove by this gigantic church building, wooden church building, that was falling apart, like really bad shape, like dilapidated, looked condemned. It looked like it had been abandoned for a really, really long time. It was in rough, rough shape. And yet there was this big sign on the church building that said, Jesus is life. Do you, do you catch the irony there at all with me? I begged Jill, can we please turn around? i got to get a picture of that sign. She's like, You're not, we're not turning around. And Jill's the practical, which I appreciate and I very much need in my life. She's like, we got to keep driving. You can describe it. You don't have to have a picture of it. If I had the picture, though, I could have showed you guys. But it's there, or it was there years ago. But, I mean, this thing was just collapsing in on, its, on itself, and it says, Jesus is life. So let me ask you this question. Does the condition of that building have any bearing on the truthfulness of the statement, Jesus is life? No. It's the correct answer. I don't know about you, but there are times when my life feels like that building. (laughs) Physically, tired, aches and pains, hurting here, hurting there, joints aren't working quite right, just sort of falling apart, even spiritually speaking, find yourself... Here I am again, the same struggle or the same issue, or why am I so irritated about this? I know it's not that big of a deal, but I find myself making it a big deal or wanting, 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 not even able to see. Snapped at one of my daughters the other day, and after I was like, what on earth? Why, why did you say that? Where did that come from? Well, it came from that fallen part of me. Just, I just need, oh, I just need more. I just need, I got to get. Because here's the thing. You know what we're all doing all the time by nature? We're trying to like, we're trying to get life out of the creation and our experiences here. We're trying to protect our lives. And to a degree, that's appropriate. Like we've got to not be foolish. Like we want to be wise. And obviously there's wisdom there. But I mean, the, the, but the, the deeper stuff, the underneath stuff, the craving stuff, I've got to have from that person, from that situation, from that material thing, from that meal. I just can't be content with the way it is right now in my home, in, in, in my body, in, in my relationships. It's got to be different. It's all like the sounds, of like, it's like the creaking sounds of that church building. Meanwhile, there's just this truth that's just there. It says, Jesus is life. Thank God. He helps us to believe it, which is where we... We'll see this in John 6. The Father draws us to the Son. He draws us to the Son. Only God can overpower the party that says, i got to save myself. Only God can do it. And He does it through His Spirit. He says, come. He says, are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you heavy laden? Are you exhausted? It's because you're a creature. Because you're limited. Because like the Son, you're, you're burning out. And unlike the sun, you're going to burn out a whole lot quicker. But there's good news. Because there's life in God. And he gives it freely as a gift of grace that you simply receive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for John chapter 1. We're just like thrown into the deep end here with John with this theology. And we're introduced to Jesus as the Logos, the Word 
as life, as light. And so we bring to you this morning, in this very moment, our darkness. The desire, the the greed, the lust, the enslavement of it, the emptiness of it. We confess it to you. We agree with you, God, that that's true. That's our condition. Left to ourselves, we would be dead. And we celebrate the reality that Jesus is life. We're recipients of that life. And we're amazed. And we thank you, God, for all the ways that you remind us. Through your written word, through conversations with others, through so many life experiences, the ways you remind us of your goodness. And when we find ourselves in that situation where we're like receiving the pager and hearing the statement, may God give you exactly what you need today, God help us. Help us to believe that in him is life. And his life is our light. And we thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.